0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the First Time Founders Podcast, the show where we talk about how to start a business from nothing and grow into something meaningful. I'm Rob Lydiard. I co-founded a software business called Yapster, which was acquired in 2022. I'm now a professional implementer of the Entrepreneurial Operating System, or EOS, which means that I work with entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial leadership teams to help them get more of what they want from their businesses. That's my day job, but in my spare time, my passion is talking to entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial people about their first-time founder experiences, what they learned on the journey, and what we can pay forward in terms of experience to give to new entrepreneurs embarking on their first entrepreneurial endeavors to hopefully try and save them more pain along the way. Today, I'm speaking to Michael Tingzager. Michael is the host of the Hospitality Mavericks podcast, a lifelong hospitality person, founder of a number of really interesting hospitality businesses, most recently a business called Pulse Kitchen. Michael's got a wealth of experience about um, how to build a great business, particularly in and around hospitality and hospitality supply chain, both from experiences he's earned himself, but also from doing more than 280 interviews with world-class hospitality operators through his podcast. I'm sure you're going to learn a ton from this conversation. So without further ado, my conversation with Michael Tingzinger. Welcome to the First Time Founders Podcast. Thank you for doing this, my friend.
1: Yeah, thank you for inviting me, Rob. I'm, I'm very honored. And I was, uh, you know, as, as I said to you, a bit puzzled about what we're going to be talking about. But uh, I'm sure you have a, have a great plan in mind.
0: Well, you you inspired me with your, your podcast, of course, the Hospitality Mavericks podcast. I suspect we've got quite a few um, contacts in common, at least from our respective time in the hospitality industry. But you're a humble guy and you, um, you're very disciplined about resisting, I think, too much of your story on Hospitality Mavericks because you very, very much make it about the guests. But of course, I know from our conversations offline that you have a terrifically interesting background of your own, which includes also founding businesses in a few different areas. And so, of course, with this being the first time Founders podcast. Yeah, I feel like you you have an unusual vantage point, in you know, a bit about hospitality, you know, a bit about management in big companies. We can talk about the McDonald's experience, you know, a bit about B2B, you know, quite a lot about B2C. So I just feel like this could be a tour de force of cock-ups and experience and learnings that we can we can share with newbies coming into the entrepreneurial world. So Michael, before we dive in, would you mind just the kind of quick two-minute tour of your, uh, yeah. your very, very uh, crazy CV so we can then dive into the latest adventures?
1: So so the quick one and thank you for for the kind words, Rob. Uh, the, the, the quick one is that I'm born and raised in a Danish hospitality family run by my mom. Uh, and she grew that to six different sites. It was not like set out to be a chain or anything and it never became. It was a mom and pop group. Um and and she did quite well and she got some health problems and needed to, you know, reduce some of the pressure there and sold some of the business off. And it meant that I had a job, of course, because working in mom and dad's restaurant happens very early on. So I was three months old when I was in the restaurant, and my mom was probably cleaning or doing something. Um, so I was running this little, you know, would be called a, call if you dilate direct, direct translation from from Danish to English, it's like a sausage trailer. Uh, <laughs> doesn't sound very charming, but they sell these hot dogs. If you've been to Copenhagen, anyone, you will see these around. So I was running that in the weekend and. Learning PL by my dad, and you know, you need to sell so much to let it trickle down to the bottom. The sausage costs this and uh, but then my mom came and said, We 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 sold this, we're selling this, and uh you need to go and have a job somewhere else, of course. You can't not not have a job because they're grafters and you always work. My mom and dad and said, No, I don't I don't want to go and have another job. Um so but my mom said there's nothing else to do. She's quite black and white, and then he said, But you don't want us to worry about it. I found your job. You're going to be working at McDonald's like Paul, their friend was open at McDonald's I said McDonald's. I think I've been to the once in Paris. So you have to go back to the nineties here. There's, there's a bit of gray here. So McDonald's is rolling out in Denmark. So this is a right. sixth or seventh restaurant. I can't remember exactly, but yeah, of course I do what mom tells me. Uh, and I think my mom at that point was hoping like I was around 15. She was opening, mcdonald's gonna tire him out for hospitality and he's gonna leave hospitality but it did the opposite because i went starting cleaning the loose for a long time and opening the the lobby and i worked my you know over the time up to become running shift to running restaurants to go to headquarters doing different roles within people technology training operation um and also had a stint here in the uk as well um and then i spent a long time in a, in a in a chain in the more entrepreneurial world from the more corporate food going into an entrepreneurial environment in a coffee chain that did organic food and so on and it was not my business but i was in there as a partner was well, so was very much building that business from four units to 27 and i was very much focusing on and Talking about how do we actually build the culture. And that's really my thing. And it became my thing very early on. I got a professor from uh, a professor of mine at university who gave me this book that's called Good to Great in My Hand. And coming back to the podcast I run today, that's also because of that book. And that book is all about why is that some people outcompete others? And again, it comes into some specific behaviors and principles. But the, the, the first one is great leadership and the ability to build great culture. Classic. So that became my theme and then i went out as a consultant as well in food and hospitality and did that and out of that actually the podcast was born because actually a friend of mine called uh ali said to me oh i would love to be a fly on the wall when you meet these ceos and have conversations and it was more like sales conversations in principle to get a gig uh, which you had many of before you got one um and then he said, could you write blogs about that? And I I don't mind writing, but it's very time consuming and it's For not sure. my my super skill. And then uh, my, my mentor I have, and I still have Chris, a uh, brilliant guy, uh, said to me, Michael, you just do what, I think it was 2017, just do what Tim Ferriss does. And I didn't know who, excuse me, in podcasting world, but I didn't know who Tim Ferriss was before he mentioned him. Then I have, of course, Google for our work week did, 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 and started listening. So that's brilliant. Interview people. I thought it's just going to be 10 episodes and then the lead machine will take care of that. And I've helped Ali as well. And those 10 turned in now to 288 episodes of Sit Here Today. And, you know, one every week now. Had great guests as uh, Jeremy King recently, Chip Conley from the States, Ari weinswag Nisha Katona. Tom Barton, Vondersberger, you know, the, the lists go on and on. Tom Elliott from, from Pizza Pilgrims. So there's a long list of great hospitality leaders there. And now that has also become a pursuit of what I'm, when it all comes together, my purpose is in principle to build businesses as a force for good. Businesses that deliver profit, impact on people, community and planet. And that's what I do in everything I do. And then... Um, it's difficult to do two minutes. You said, I'm also involved in a couple of businesses beside these things. And that led to me. I met another Danish guy in London in 2015. And first we launched um a catering business, uh, for office catering. We had customers like Airbnb sit hotel. It was going really well. And then there came this word. We, we, we don't want to talk about anymore, the pandemic and wiped the revenue off. From yeah, I remember that. Well. <laughs> um, and we had to change the way we were thinking about things So first we thought it was just three months and then we'll be back on track and then we learned you know after we have fed the, the front light workers and been part of all that that actually it looks like very dire so we're not going to come back as we did and then we created a new product and for people that is viewing on video they can see so we created the pulse kitchen which is principal a meal solution uh you can either buy as a consumer direct consumer in some retail settings and you take that home and you add your pasta and your sauce. And now we're also starting selling this into to food service, which is very interesting. Back back to the roots, you know, helping operators, you know, getting delicious, plant based, natural food on the table, but also saves lots of labor and waste and complexity and so on. So so that's that's the the quick journey of what I've been through, and then there's been some some other touch points as well. But that's like the the major milestones, Rob.
0: No, thank you. And I, I actually have tri- I've tried the product. I, I I loved it. I um, I I know you wouldn't go into the, go into this if I wasn't provoking you, but I do want to because I think it would be helpful for folks. Like, like, I thought the product was delicious. What was it about it that inspired you to do it and makes it unique and different? For the customers, whether they're consumer or business, because I, I you know, and look, and don't cringe, because I'm not, it's, I, I know it feels like a sales pitch, but it is important because we're going to talk about the substance behind the business. Yeah. I think it's going to mean a lot more to people when they kind of understand the, 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 the philosophy of the why before we get into the how, yeah.
1: So, so, so the product, as people can see, and that's the lo- last product placement we're going to do, is is called Pulse. Company is called Pulse Kitchen, and there's a lentil bolognese. And pulses, uh, I'm not trying to educate people, is you know lentil, beans, and peas. And the reason why we landed on that was actually what our mission was, originally we with our catering company was to make more climate-friendly, tasty food. Because we knew there's a lots of vegetarian option out there, that are not very tasty, and there was not an uptake on it in especially not in catering at that time. So also we had to do something that would reduce complexity in our operations. So we knew that we need to create some basis around how we build our menus. So these sources which we batch cooked every week, became the basis. You can make an Italian menu, you can make a Mexican menu, you can make a Thai menu, you can make a Japanese menu around these sauces. But there's always pulses in because they replace the protein. So pulses is very high in protein. Often, you know, dried pulses has the same amount of protein as uh, minced meat or any kind of meat. Right. Um, So we didn't say per se that we we're going to replace meat, but we said we're going to reduce meat in, in the office context. And we found out if you make pulses super tasty, you actually start seeing people dropping off the meat wagon, which was the interesting thing. And then was people saying, these offices were saying, can we get this home at night? And that was the touch point in the pandemic. But actually how we think food and the philosophy around it is exactly that we believe that food should be joy without restriction. And it should, of course should be natural. So when I was out restriction is that we're not saying any kind of isms that you have to be vegan or vegetarian. Uh, we're actually just saying that you have to enjoy your food. And we just made sure that it's a very tasty product. Then you can add your meat if you want to. And it's all built on, there's a huge study done by Harvard University uh, around the menus of change and how we actually should eat if we should do the best for our health and the planet. And it actually eating more of key Four key uh, food groups, which is grains, pulses, lots of veg, and then nuts and seeds. If we get that on our plate all the time, we're in a good place. Then you can add meat, and you do that in a lot of culture, more for taste and flavor, not right. the main thing. So I think mean, the meat comes last, not first, as it often does in Western cooking as it is today. And that was actually the philosophy we build around these products. And then that's the philosophy we go out and work with in, in food service or also to the consumer. Exactly. We've actually done the hard bit. We've done the batch cooking. And batch cooking is a pain both at home and in kitchen, and mm. in, co- in the commercial kitchen. And in commercial kitchen, it's actually super risky and very inconsistent. Um, and, and that's actually the whole idea comes from that we were eating like that and we saw the impact on ourselves. We translated that into a catering company that was doing quite well. We couldn't do anything about a pandemic. And now we're trying to translate that into a product and also the support we give, especially in food service, to bring that to a life. Because we believe that if we can eat like this, we can change the world by the way we eat. It is our purpose of the business.
0: I, I love it. And you know what makes me laugh is I've obviously gone from being in a product business to now running a sort of teaching and advisory business 50% of my yeah, my time, and of course you've gone from having and other businesses, but also an advisory business. You know, like relatively low overhead, like co- intellectually complex but operationally simple. Yeah, you decided to go into a product business. You gone directly the other way. Yeah, and I have to say, mate, it sounds awesome, but I don't envy you because it is complicated, isn't it? So for yeah. the uninitiated, would you just start with the very hardest thing about the new business and like work towards simple? Like this, this is a place to talk about, like not to feel sorry for ourselves, but to talk no, no, honestly no. about the hardship of entrepreneurship. Yeah, but
1: that's that's where we learn, you know, that there's no one that learns from hearing successes. That's a, uh, that's a, uh, that's BS in my world. So, but I think the really key thing is that there's many things that's complex in us in any business. And if you knew what you would be facing, you wouldn't be doing. So it's good to be naive and, even though you have this beautiful plan you know as we said before we started recording you only have a plan to you punch in the face you know and that plan's gone out of the out of the window uh, i think the toughest bit up to now has been really first of all for we were producing ourselves first those mm-hmm. those issues around scalability food service safety kind of rules you need to be salsa bsc accredited that's quite difficult if you don't have a smaller professional Setup or a factory, so we had to go out and find a manufacturing partner. Really, to go national with this, um yeah, there's lots of factories, but finding the right factory and people who want to work with you doesn't matter how great your story is, how good you are selling it. It takes time, and it took us. We thought it would take us six months. It took us eighteen months.
0: Because um, is, is there a chicken and egg problem in that, like the best manufacturing partners want scale for obvious reasons, but you don't get to scale until you've got a manufacturing partner.
1: There's some, though, there you know, some places we ended there, and then also that they can't deliver the product, or they, we had a place where they changed the recipe to worse ingredients, and of course we are all no about right. naturally and high ingredients. So there's again some ethics as well, and you need to learn these things, and you know, complex contracts. It's a new world, and as you said, you gone from selling products to service. I went both, you know, from service. To product but also to selling and being a supplier and suddenly you have complexity in the supply chain i thought i knew what the supply chain in food looked like but again there's so many things i didn't understand and still learning in a steep way because it's a very different and a very complex people as in food would know It's not just that there's a factory to send the product on. And then there's the margins as well. Like, how do you then get your margins? You find your partner. How do you then, you get your cost price. And then how do you then build your margins? And how can you sell the product at the price you need to sell at That's (laughs) the next hurdle, I would say. But
0: How how many um, corporate customers attempted to kind of produce their own product? I mean, one of the things we're seeing in the software world now is... um, you know, with cloud computing and engineers being, you know, I mean, there's still not enough engineers being educated, but there are more. It's a more fashionable thing to do now. Yeah. It's actually easier for corporates to hire their own, engineer, own engineers sometimes. They yeah. only actually give up those products when they realize the cost of supporting those products yeah. without spreading it across more, more customers than their own requirements. But it is still something that puts sometimes downward price pressure on an early stage product company and software Do you find the same thing in your world where you present this great idea and then they're like tempted to go and try and find a manufacturer themselves? Like how do you protect the margin in the middle when you haven't yet established the brand?
1: Of course, there's a risk we put up, but we haven't seen it really yet because I think, you know, if it was just a product, if you just look at the product, everybody can copy a product. So it's really about where where we are focusing on and have been focusing with creating a different, our brand identity has also changed three times. Since we we launched, because there's also we've done lots of tests with consumers, and also in the food service, really understanding, you know, how do we bring all these things that's inside the founders? Because that always is the founder story. How do you scale that? and how did that in, is is how do that come alive in the logo? How do actually all these you know things we believe in come to life? And how do we bring this alive? And you know, not just getting the design done, but how do you start communicating about? It? I think we we're first ready now. Bit more than two years in, we need to go aggressively out talking about that journey and why it actually, you know, it's very funny you asked that question about why is it that you have this philosophy around food and so on. And it's just taking time to write that down and get, you know, um, mold into the business. So I think there's an element of that. And that's the only way you can win if you don't want to be copied. Yeah. on the story, I believe. And, you know, of course, the quality of your product has to be consistent. It's just baseline, you know. But everybody, I believe, can copy the product. I know that. I have no, you know, I'm not naive about that. And that's also why it's not about the way you produce your product. It's about, you know, of course, protecting your IP. But actually, what change are you doing in the world, and what is your your social mission besides that? I think that's where they can't compete with you, the even big corporates, because they they can't be authentic about that. Not because they are done anything wrong but that's not their role their role is to scale things and bring them out to more people
0: yeah i mean that was my argument always with with corporates that were minded to write their own software whilst there might be a handful that that did you'd often say to them that like by the time you've covered the maintenance burden this and you're very welcome to try like you didn't you wouldn't be arrogant you let them go for it that's what they really want to do but like the loss of focus on their core offer of what actually makes them competitive in the market just wasn't worth it plus the the central overhead they then have to apply to to producing something made sense I was just curious because I always think it's it's really interesting in a product world because I think it's something that founders don't often think about when they go negotiate with big corporates because they're often dealing with semi-entrepreneurial people client side that um, are like intellectual tourists occasionally they'll talk to founders because it's interesting but they don't really have any appetite to do anything you know and so they can really they also, they also
1: have much more time in the world than than you have and yes and um their timelines and the way their risk they're risk averse and i think you know early on the journey as we were pitching in in the bit we 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 also forgot that as entrepreneurs like you know okay we have to help them take risk out of that and, you know, uh, and it's, it's, it's very, it's very, even if you know your customer really well, I know lots of my customer really well because I've been there, things change, you know, the pandemic has changed the decision-making process, especially in food service as well. Um, and I think you have to be really, really assessing all the time, you know, you need to, you know, de-risk your sales fund much more than I thought that was another learning, so it means, you know, when I say de risk, it means that you you're not living off twenty percent of your customer has eighty percent of your revenue. It's a very fragile world. You see, com- you will probably see companies and I have seen companies disappearing off the radar going into administration right now. And as a young company, you really need to de you de risk that right now. But I don't have the answer, but I can see that's one of the challenges we are we are facing. Um so so we are trying to do a healthy spread of that, but again, that's complicated the sales. It's not like we're just doing big corporate contracts. No, we need to, and that was also something I didn't really thought about. And then you need to have a direct to consumer channel. And then if retail comes and want you to come and pitch, you go and pitch and then you have to do that. So it's this, and it, and it's something I actually thought we could choose a route to market and say, this is our route to market. We do only food service, which is a primary channel. But I can see also you can't let the other opportunity pass in the environment you're in right now as an entrepreneur. You need to, okay. There's a sale is a sale. It's cash flow. Um, so I think it's really interesting next six months to figure out what is the most effective place to sell, in principle.
0: Totally. And you mentioned Jim Collins earlier. Of course, you got that famous sort of Jim Collins flywheel. He talked about the I don't know which book it was in, but he he illustrated great, yeah it. he yeah. illustrated the Amazon flywheel, doesn't didn't he and as you're talking, you can see how having a direct-to-consumer presence, some retail presence kind of building the brand creates sort of higher brand value as it relates to your corporate customers, which yeah. then in turn drives, you know, discovery, feeding D2C and retail. I can see how that turns, but it does necessarily add some, some sales and marketing complexity and operational complexity into the business, doesn't it? But Sometimes the right business model just finds you on its way, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and yeah, you, yeah,
1: yeah, I think you you, exactly you, the same.
0: You have yeah. to step. You have to step into it, even though you know. You know, I love the entrepreneurial operating system. One of the key principles is simplify, 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 which I do absolutely believe. But but it's it, people. What sometimes people misunderstand is you have to simplify to the limits of the right model for your organization, which may sometimes involve trading a little bit of complexity, right? Like because because you have to step into the actual opportunity in front of you, not the one that you idealized in your mind.
1: Yeah, and I think even you've put them down on great presentation, pitch decks and investor decks and so on. And it sounds like that is the route. You also just I think it's being agile is used a lot of time, but I think it's it's still having that, you know, your initial thoughts about would work, go to market probably will work at some point, but maybe you also haven't opened the right door yet and i think it's a lot about finding people especially for a small you know finding the right people that helps you on the way um so i think i think coming back to your original question about what i found hard you know that you know it's hard to to get to a point where you can sell a product that's legally compliant on scale that's the first step but then you know you know at the same time getting your brand identity and then you know, you you then have to go out and get people to buy at volume and sell that. But it's not like you're not hiring a sales force because you're not Unilever in this con- connection. With ten salespeople, who's going out just banging in every door. You have to be very, you know, your founders with the time you have. So again, you need to like silver bullet, not cannonballs. And then you adjust as you miss the target. You adjust your things, and I think that's again you have to accept that complexity. And uncertainty that you will live with and, you know, difficult challenges that comes with more complex, as you say, sales
0: processes and different, different in consumer as well, you know, users. What do you miss, if anything, about conventional hospitality? Like now from the vantage point of being the founder or co-founder of Pulse Kitchen, what do you miss about running a multi-site restaurant or cafe business? Like in what ways are they different?
1: You, the lovely thing about hospitality is you get, you know, instant feedback on your performance, and I think that's why lots of people love hospitality. In hospitality for a long time, And it's funny enough. One of our uh, our ways of our sales techniques with it, the Bosgate is all about taste. So it's a taste drive sales. And we do out and do a lot of, you know, pop-ups. We've done with ISS, Sodexo, and we're in those situations. That's the the founder strengths. We're playing on the founder's strengths. Um, and that's a bit like being back again, because you can read the room. you can read the person. You can be in service. Um, there's no doubt about when every year since I haven't been in operation and Christmas hit, even how painful it was. I miss it. Like I was in there for lunch today with really? one, of my, one of my friends and you miss that bus of building up to that and have a successful period. Because again, it's instant, you know, instant if this works or not, you can correct straight away. And I think a lot of hospitality forget sometimes to enjoy that. Actually, I know it's overwhelming sometimes and very hard, but also you definitely know if there's coming more customers in next week and the week before because you changed something. But what we are doing now, we're working on some things we don't know the impact on a new range, for example. That we don't know, we believe this is gonna revolutionize sales numbers. But imagine we launched that in Q1 and it doesn't. Yes, that feels like nine months of work where you couldn't get any more feedback than consumer tests, which is consumer tests, it's not the market pulling. So, I think it's that instant feedback. And, um, and then also the human element of you're, 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 surrounded by a lot of humans all the time, which you can impact positively. And, and that's really my thing. And you're much a much smaller team in a, in a, in a supplier kind of world, and you are in a, in a restaurant kind of setting. So, yeah. Oh
0: my God. That's so interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Have you found that you've almost had a bias to want to scale prematurely because your passion for kind of people and process where right now it's about understanding product and market?
1: Also, um, that's not my background. So it's been like learning on having we had a we have a very good advisor, investor, ex unilever marketing guy, like working a lot with with Sean. That's been really, really good. But like the whole positioning work becomes even more important than just do a really well defined restaurant concept. Because right. having a restaurant doesn't open and actually become a success by you know, because of the energy that first site had, and then they get the positioning right because they're adapting because now we've got the site. We need to open in three months. The money's running, you know, we need to get open. Where here you're actually doing a lot of positioning and strategy work and you're testing assumption, which is a very different world. Um which I think for both founders is a totally learning curve, but also in principle we go from being um, you know, we wouldn't call it operator, but like running teams and the ability to build teams and processes, as you say, very quickly is not the super skill. The super skill is actually positioning and finding out the route to market, and which is it's, it's in a restaurant is opening the door. That's the, the location, open the doors. That's the route to market. Very, you know, very, very simple set, but
0: yeah. And have you ramped up anything prematurely? Yeah. I mean, like one of my favorite topics is in B2B, at least in software, is ramping up a sales team too quickly when your, your product's oh, not yeah. ready. Your product's not ready yet. Oh, yeah, so, like, have you wasted some money? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <And> time.
1: <laughs> like, you know, either where you thought you would hire something in freelance and this is going to be the the, the 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 big thing or negotiation on deals that suddenly just slips between your hands. Uh, yeah. Because you were almost, you hadn't opened the champagne, but you're definitely been thinking about which shop you're going down to the bottle and boom something changes in their world um and i think that you know i think this is entrepreneurs you know at some point you you you're so hungry for that success that you forget actually it never comes like that it comes one percent every day drip 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 and then there will Suddenly something happened and you will not even see that's the thing. There's the swing wheel effect again. Wow, that was the thing. That was actually what's making or breaking this business. You know, that that was the thing. Um, I don't think that's been quite hard sometimes that you, when you when you come from the hospitality world again, where there's, you know, you have this recognition straight away, are the guests happy or not? Or um, And also everybody has an opinion about, a product you sell, a food product, you sell to consumers of end users, because of course the operators would sell whatever the end consumer wants. Right. There's so many opinions about food and taste. with in a restaurant setting. Many times, this is our menu. This is what we serve. And you don't have these discussion about, oh, there's a bit too much, you know, tomato in, uh, and there's all this, you know, lots of complex feedback you need to take on. And at some point, you just have to say, "This is our belief. This is how our product's going to be. Take it or leave it." A bit like Apple. That's what I've learned as well. There's, there's at some point as founder, you need to believe in the product, and instead of taking on feedback. So I think there's um, um, and then I think also we, we we there was one really good learning where we ramped up, we sold a huge contract before right. we had manufacturing really nailed down, and then that manufacturer pulled on us. Oh, no. I'll never, ever do that again because I thought I have a pipeline of people who wanted to work with them, but I didn't think about they maybe also there's an onboarding with them. And, of course, people know if you are not really moved yet, then you might be looking at something else. So you, again, assess if you are the right partner for them. And then there was that delays. It was these four months of where well, you were just holding on. Because everybody was upset, you know.
0: Um, It's so stressful.
1: Yeah. So that that's probably the best ramping up story. Just made me think that I know I went a bit around, but I think that's why that was not fun. Like, and and you forget about that, but that, that was this year, you know, like where you thought, now we're ready, we go. Let's just turn it on, and then you get the order. Yeah. And then two days later you have to call them and say, We have a little challenge, you know, we can't produce for next month we're sorry about that
0: <laughs> it's amazing like the experience you get doing these different these different business models here's a question for you given all of your consulting experience the fact that you've had 280 something hospitality and related entrepreneurs onto your podcast you've got a very very wide network of successful entrepreneurial people plus your own study and learning have you at any time had any kind of analysis paralysis on the the way that you go about running this or any of your other businesses does that make sense? You almost sometimes feel like you know too much. You've got this, you, you know, like a lot of successful entrepreneurs almost fall into their first opportunity, figure a few things out as they go, as yeah. they go hopefully don't make any fatal mistakes that kill them, and then yeah, they just uh, carry on. You uh, get the survivor uh, bias,
1: right? Yeah,
0: yeah I totally do you get find weird. that? Do yeah, you overthink yeah. it sometimes.
1: I probably because I have access. Sometime I if I should. Really, i ask too much around and then you get too many opinions coming back to consumer feedback again and i think you actually as a founder Uh, that's interesting because i i was not you know i did corporate food for many years in mcdonald's and so you you're very used to take risk out of things that that's been a process over the years and i think still is there i see risk where my founder, other founder, would say that that's that's actually sometimes a good thing. He doesn't see risk because I would say, oh, red flag, red flag, we need to navigate that. And actually, I think sometimes there's a bit. You say if you don't know, you just go through it. You don't look for the problem. So there's no doubt about this. That and also if you've been a consultant. That's your job. Your job is to. Digest things out and put them together again and find all the risk you can find and then help the client to mitigate that risk, you know, or the, find the opportunity within that. It's not really to take risk. It's not the job you are hired for. It's to minimize risk and save money or time or make people better. Um, I think you're right. And it is it's a really interesting question. And I think it comes up sometimes. Um, and again, you know, also. You, everybody's on their own journey and that's also what I've learned and you can't just copy, it's great to interview lots of, you can get lots of good ideas, but you need to apply it and find your own rhythm around it you need to build your own flywheel I often say individual flywheel about life and how you approach things, but it's definitely it is, it is and it's a really good question, but I think there's no doubt about it, it has an effect sometimes that I have too much tried a couple of things and I sometimes have to leave that and then just go with the God. Because the yeah. God always pull it. Funny enough, always in the right. I also believe in data. So I think it's a very good mixture of that. Um, but I is a couple of times also in the process where some of the people we have on uh, have have been very successful in corporate life and they are investors and then they come with their corporate view on, because that's what they know and not because they're bad people. That's a really valid argument. And then you spend too long procrastinating because you know as the founder, you know what's right in principle to do. Instead of just going and doing it, you like mold it over and mold it over to you get to find out how oh, we spent three months on this. and um, And it was actually not correct what they said. But that's not because they didn't want to give the right advice, just because they've never been founders. And that's, uh, But they're good at something else, and that's, that's why you have them on board. So find out how you use your network. I think that's as well, and and what you ask for sometimes, because sometimes you don't want to ask because you maybe get, uh, John, well, our friend John Mason would say, you, you should always ask, but said, sometimes you don't want to ask because actually you know what's right. And if you ask, you just complicate things for yourself.
0: Yeah, it's so true. It's funny, actually. I know that my experience of founding Yapster and then the, those eight years has made me gun shy. Like I, um, I cannot bear the idea of three, four, five years in the product wilderness finding product market fit no. again, you know, like so... A lot of that's really valuable. Like I'm obsessed with customer discovery and message market fit. You know, yeah. you don't need to build a product and raise a million quid to check if people are going to buy your idea. You know, your web page that explains it and see if they click through is a good start. But sometimes there's a benefit to just diving in and figuring out once you're in the ocean. Right. Yeah. But like I, I can't bring myself to just dive in without knowing what's ahead of me now.
1: Yeah, but another thing I think it's a change. I know you also become a dad. You know, you become, and uh, then I think That's right. that, I think that actually have an impact on me as well. Uh, that you know, you become you know, naturally. I think you as a human, you become less risk averse because you suddenly have a very big purpose, and you also have a very big you know responsibility to make sure that little one is taken care of, whatever that exactly. means—clothes, yeah. food roof over their head, you know, and where in principle, when you're on your own, as of where I started as well, it doesn't really matter, you'll figure it out, you know, I'll sleep on a couch, you know, worst case. I think that changes also your entrepreneurial mindset, but I think we quite lucky with my business partner. We are very, we are, we are like, you know, talking about rocket fuel, entrepreneurial system, you know, that's rocket fuel, there's a dream and visionary, and then the me, the integrator. There's, there's uh, a.
0: Have, oh, have you got that visionary integrator dynamic? Yeah. Talk, talk to me about your perspective on the entrepreneurial operating system because it obviously is a simple system. It's what I love about it. But yeah. It's derived from a lot of more complex theories, which I know you're also expert in. So I'd be yeah. interested in sort yeah, of what they, your thoughts are on EOS. So, so
1: Gino Wickman, if he's still involved, uh, was the founder of this, and he had this idea about there's all this great management theory, but how do we actually simplify it so you can use it in small business? Right, and um, and that's why I fell in love with it because it was uh, also because he has a very much that people first thing. You know, if you don't get the team right, forget about scaling because that's really going to be the thing that breaks your business. But I think what we he, he have you have behind you, you have the wheel behind you. I can see there's a the vision, there's some some data, and he talks about process and traction. And we're very much in the traction bit right now. We have the vision bit, but really the traction bit. What is the problem? I fix, yeah, and then you have your people. It's a very small team right now, so that people is always important. But it's more easy to manage. I know when we had twelve people, um, knock on wood, we do that. Um, then, then suddenly it becomes from a family of friends to. But I'm not I'm really scared about that. It's really funny with other entrepreneurs. We'll come back to that in a second. They're really scared about growing the team. That's not really what I'm scared about. I'm really scared right. about the, the product market fit because if we don't get that. That's not going to be a team. Um, no, but so, so coming back to that, what I really like about like the simplicity of it again, it's very practical and there's all these tools you can go and use and they sometimes look very simplified but if you follow them but you have to do them and that's the thing you need to put the work in these templates and then incredible things yeah. start to happen you get yeah. clarity and you might use the tool a bit different um and it was actually in part of we were starting writing investment decks a couple of years ago and i I came back to the um, the rocket fuel, the, the integrator and the visionary because we actually had to sell to investors why they should invest. And they're not investing in the idea early on. They're investing in the, the founders and believing True. because any sensible investor knows when you come and present them, it's not how it's going to run out. You know, it's going to something not totally different, but. It might take a different twist in the pipelines you are presenting and numbers you're presenting. So it was very much talking about how we bring the two skills and we use the language from there. And it was very powerful. We still do that. And we always talk about that, especially if there's a, because the, the integrator and the visionary also clashes. Because uh, yeah. it's, it's not much, much about, I'm very much focusing on reality and what's happening right now. I can see into the future. It's not because I'm not visionary, but I don't I don't dream all the time. I'm not I'm not, oh let's start this thing let's do that thing. And no, let's finish what we have and fly in the flywheel effect 1% every day. And people listen to the podcast would know that's the only thing I almost talk about all the time. But again, it's healthy because then we can't be all about process in a business, because it's also about where we're we going and how do we challenge our perception of things, how do we do things differently? And if you can make that founder team work, as you know, Wigman says, it's very, very powerful. But I think lots of, I've seen as a consultant as well, lots of founders, they also set out with their business partners and don't check in on this early enough in the journey. And I think that book is absolutely brilliant because it gives you a language to talk about why you need this. And you maybe find out you don't have a visionary on the team. Maybe you need to get either an advisor or somebody in that can help with the visionary skills. Then it doesn't mean you need to hire them. And I think what's interesting with this is also not just a management book. It's actually, they're actually doing this and they're taking it from their own business into the philosophy, writing book. And, and all these people that's involved in this is often ex-business owners, which again, it's people that has pain.
0: I it's so true.
1: And have been successful or not, it's not the case. It's the pain they had. And I think often we think yeah. people have to be successful for advising, actually the people has just by, you know, there's some, that found the founded businesses and just hit the golden stream and unicorn businesses or very lucky get bought three years out. And wow, uh, I haven't had the pain as you say, you you you, you, you have had a bit of a, you know, an, a pain somewhere where you, don't, you would like to go and have that experience again. And if you have but you can probably advise very well on that pain and I think often you know you want to talk with people also people has done this similar such, such type business as you uh, and I think a lot of us is in the small businesses. there's not many startups that actually become uh, we all wish we become big and great and mighty but most actually become maybe medium-sized businesses um, or maybe just small small scale-ups and takes a very long time to to get there. And I think also working with a system that fits with that instead of the typical management book, and I have some of them behind me, are really on big companies. And I think that's another, you know, really strong element with the system. And again, you know, and it's so simple, like the, the model you have there is like it's in the book. It's not it, even a simplified model. This is how it looks in the book.
0: It, it, it is. And it's right. Do you know what's really lovely? It's really nice. That you've noticed that about the EOS implementer community. So I, I got certified with EOS worldwide in the, um, like, like this year. So we sold you up to the last year. I'm still working with Sona, like, you know, reading, yeah. building the next generation of product, but I've got time outside of that. My passion's working with other founders. And I thought the entrepreneurial operating system changed my life. And, you know, it's something I'm passionate about, but I wanted to do it properly. So I went and got, i didn't certified. know that did you not know yes yeah. so I, ah. cert- I got certified and um so i'm one of like 30 professional implementers and the, as some of them have hired designations to me they're called certified implementers they might have done like a thousand sessions or something yeah and um and you're right like they, they all come from business backgrounds and it, it is like being in a little bit of a cult when you go and do the quarterly sessions because we all are like raving evangelists for it because it's it's set many of us free in some way yeah in our businesses and you know most of us made a bit of money but not the money that we dreamt of when we started right like there aren't that many people that like flying on their private jet to the eos quarterly (laughs) implementer session even though some of them very successful right but like most of us talk about the pain yeah it's interesting and when you're when you're sitting down with other entrepreneurs and visionaries that are in chaos and they just need they just need a simple way to pull it all together. Yeah. It's so funny how nobody's interested in hearing about your successes. Like in my story, I literally say, I founded this business called Yapster. For five out of the eight years I ran it, it was a shit show. We raised a bunch of money, hired a bunch of people, won some great customers, like, and then I name a whole bunch of brands like Brewdog and Next and whoever, Cafe Nero. And I say, and then we were bought by a company back by Google in 2022 but I can make it sound much better externally than it actually was internally and how it felt for most of the time, until a guy called Kenny Blair, who's the MD of a bar group in Scotland called Buzzworks, gave me a copy or recommended I get a copy of Traction. And it was like someone turned a light switch off. So like, I'm really glad that that's kind of come across to you that like, you know, whether you like the system or not, the people that are advocates for it, like it's very real to, to us, very real.
1: Yeah, and I, uh, I think I think it's um the inter- really, really great because actually that's, you know one of the things I'm going to do in the future is exactly that, and I'm not maybe I'm maybe not going to consult on it or anything, but I think it's like you know it's a better version of a real MBA for most businesses because that's you, you would thing. love
0: it. We call it teaching as well, by the way, like rather than consulting, because we don't go in and run their business. We just teach teach them the entrepreneurial operating yeah, system until yeah, yeah. until my... they until they don't need us and then they just run it themselves.
1: Yeah, no, that's in principle also what you need is you, if you have to consult, it means that they're dependent on you. Which I always have been very much against. You know, I've had, uh, that's a good I've, point. I've had, you know, McKinsey coming and visiting me in corporate life, and you just think, oh my God, and you never had pain. So why should I listen to you? You never open a restaurant where there's full of water or, you know, mice or whatever. You know, you never really understand. Yeah. You don't understand. And, and, and then not, I'm not having a go at McKinsey, but it's just like, I'd never really understood that because that doesn't really change anything because they don't do the transformation. They just you know, yes. plan. And then you figure out what you do with that plan, that strategy. It's a beautiful strategy. It's what you call it. You have the uh, GC index, which I'm uh, certified in. Is like where you look at where you play on your strengths. And there's something in there called a game changer, a strategist, an implementer a polisher and a, a a team player and of course you have a bit of all but you're strong on two of them and right. normally if mckinsey or, or uh, Bain or whoever hires they want strategists what the strategy is just come up with plans you know they don't implement anything so um so it's very it, interesting where i see the 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 us uh, uh framework very much as implementers you know teachers as you call them and, and 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 team players you know like it's it's not about you know me just coming with a beautiful plan and then we're written on the blackboard and now go out you know it's about teaching you how to run your business in a more simplified way
0: it's so true are you still available for people that do need some some practical help or are you are you just totally fully like running at a kitchen and you're happy to chat to people on linkedin and things or, yeah, yeah i'm happy you know. to
1: chat with people but actually what i do now is like 100 focusing on pulse kitchen and then the the podcast which very well it's connected with what we do as well and from an entrepreneurial point of view and commercial point of view we sell to the industry and therefore having the the pulse on the industry and understand what's going on it's quite critical and um and i will also find it it's it's funny as as I think I said I kinda of said to you before we recorded, it's become that thing, a bit like you put your running shoes on and run X times a week. I need my podcast fixed because it's also it's about it's my it's my personal MBA, I often call it as well, where you, you learn learn a lot by listening. Um, and often um we, we we are not very good at that in, in podcasting somehow. And you probably learned that you, you're forced to listen if you want to have a good conversation.
0: Well, I mean, some of the conversations you've had on there are unbelievable. And it is interesting, um, the depth of insight that your listeners get into the industry and some of the people you have on. It's quite an intimate experience, isn't it? Having someone like... Um, uh is it jeremy, jeremy king right I yeah i had jeremy he, king recently yeah he is such an impressive yeah. guy quite 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 imposing were you a little bit like yeah nerv- were you a little bit nervous i was starstruck it was one of those you know and i'm always
1: nervous because if you're not nervous you don't care i believe so that's good but i was really nervous because that was like you know when i started early on the podcast journey because i didn't start out thinking this is going to be a weekly thing i'll be totally honest it's it like bit like i jump into it and it evolved and it became a thing right um, um and i think i've done that with most things that we didn't start the pulse kitchen because saying oh we're going to do the pulse kitchen and then we're going to be feeding people pulses and then it's going to go mental because some kind of trend in the market saying it. no it's because it really comes from inside uh but, but jeremy come back to jeremy king it was um you know, It's like when you interview your heroes, and I've never met Jeremy King before I interviewed him, really, only read interviews, and I, had, I couldn't find any really podcast or video interviews, I couldn't get an idea about how you do it, and then you also sit in front of this man that's gone through lots of pain. And Oh my gosh. Think- how the hell do we interview this man with respect as well? Because and he's back again in the game. You know, he, he he got literally thrown under the bus a couple of years, and now he's back. He don't need to, but he's back because he's like really care. And I thought like I was so honored that he wanted to come on the show and he was recommended by another guest, you know, and like that's also like you meet people you would never
0: ever. Uh, listen I think yeah. what you've done is amazing and and he in particular is so cool like I heard him talking once and he one of the things he said is he like had these very exclusive like restaurants and he was talking about the price point and of course one of the things he's been famous for is having like really affordable soup and like these world class wines but also very affordable sort of house wines or sort of you know lower wineness wines and he just he's got this I can't even do an impression of him because I'm so excitable and he's so dignified but he was like to have an interesting restaurant, you can't fill it full of private equity types. It has to be affordable to interesting people or the or the wealthy people don't want to come. And it was so simple, but I thought my fucking head was going to explode because it was so insightful. It was yeah. so cool. And you could just imagine like these like musicians and bohemians deliberately in his restaurant and he built his menu so that they were curious and could afford it so that he could sell a, 500 quid bottle of wine to some boring private equity dude. And I was just like, man, you're my hero. And the fact that, you know, he's wanting to come into your community and so many other great people have, I think such a testament to who you are, your passion for the industry, which now straddles like supplier, operator, consultant. Um, Yeah. You've done a lot for entrepreneurship in the industry and, you know, I'm sure I wouldn't be, you know, it'd be remiss of me not to thank you on behalf of all the people that listen, but can't like talk back because, you know, podcast doesn't have a comment section um michael you very generously said people that have listened and found you interested are welcome to reach out with you on linkedin you don't yeah. consult anymore but you're always happy for always happy founders to with ideas to say yeah. hi
1: always happy to chat and always happy to to help and i believe you know you have to give 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 to get so i'm very much in that mindset and uh, you can always ask as a because that's really important to ask as well uh, and actually being on the podcast talking about entrepreneurship, there's like an interview coming up with a guy called Wayne Baker who wrote this book. You, uh, you should always ask, and the, the 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 power of asking questions, which is John Mason, we know our shared friend from Sideways. Uh, he's very it, he got me onto him, and I hunted him down on LinkedIn. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs will learn a lot of that. But of course, we need to ask sometimes for help when we need help because I think entrepreneur journey is a very hard journey and there's many areas we need help on and uh, we are not superhumans, you know we are just humans so it's about surrounding you with the right the five most important people all the time and the ability to ask them for help you know and also ask your investors for help i had this conversation recently rob i think it's perfect time and I, i was like puzzle over this you know a fellow entrepreneur that didn't want to ask his investors for help they don't just if they're just invested with money then definitely the wrong investors if you can't ask their great
0: minds about help yeah you just can't be proud can not you so you heard it here folks uh here uh it heard it here first folks one of the most connected men in hospitality happy for you to ping him on linkedin and shamelessly pump him for wisdom michael thank you so much for doing this it's been amazing
1: thank you rob